everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures all his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Today's lesson is the ninth in this series of lessons looking verse by verse through the tiny New Testament book of Titus. In this book, class teacher Doug Brady investigates and presents the words of Paul the Apostle as he teaches Titus, who is the pastor of the church on the Isle of Crete, and is learning the way that he should lead the church. Apparently, the church at Crete was using other materials and systems to reach Crete, but these were placed there by Satan, and obviously it was a big mistake. The Believer's Bible class is part of the First Baptist Church of Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall on the lower level of the new Worship Center building on the downtown campus of the church. We would love to have you visit our class if you are in the area. Well, now I see Doug is at the podium and is ready to begin. So without any more comment, let's go into the classroom, open our Bibles to the book of Titus, and get ready for this lesson. Here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. You know, we have been delayed a little bit in our study here. We, we were out for weather when we couldn't be here. And then I, I intervened with a story or, or with a subject matter lesson on God's plumb line to try and lead us as a transition back into Titus. And now this is control. You know, it's at the end of the fruit of the Spirit in uh, Galatians 5, 23 but if you think about it a second, all the things you're supposed to have, whether it's joy or peace or love or kindness or gentleness, any of those things, if you don't have self-control, you're not going to have those things. Self-control is kind of the foundation of all of it. And yet self-control is also the hardest of all of them, or at least for me. And so I want you to think about that as we go on. But now there's going to be another change in the book, now in chapter 3. Now Paul turns his attention to the believer's interaction with their society and how, uh, how they're going to live. If you remember, as we studied the first chapter, uh, Crete is an island that was very pagan. It, it, pagan culture. Uh, how should a believer live in the midst of a pagan society. Now, this question is addressed here in Titus, and we're going to look at it very carefully. We're also going to look at it in our next study. But it seems to ask a question. Do we really live in a pagan land? Well, we're going to answer that question in just a second. And maybe before we do, let's pray. Father, as we come today before you, May what I say be only what you want said. Help me not to do anything that would steal your glory, but to always uh, allow the glory to inure to your benefit because you are glorious, you are God, and you are the one who should be speaking through me and not me myself. Now, Father, I pray that you open the hearts today and that we understand what's going on and we see how we are to live even in these difficult times. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. So this question, are we really living in a pagan land? I tried to examine this the last couple of weeks to come to uh, an understanding. You know, you can always say things are worse than they really are. Or sometimes we think things are better than they really are. But how are they really? So as I started looking back, I first determined that there's no question, there can be no question that our nation was founded as a Christian nation. You know, I quoted to you a Supreme Court case on that out of 1892 uh, last Sunday. But if you look at your government, 
how it was founded as a republic was based on biblical principles. Biblical principles that sin will always corrupt man. Therefore, you want to have the highest level of authority in something that can't be corrupted, which was our constitution, supposedly. That's what our framers believed. But they also believed it would be a fight not to allow the constitution to be corrupted. But it was a government of laws. The laws that they had had the same foundation, biblical principles. The morals of the people who helped establish our nation were based on the Bible. Churches flourished in our country. Then I'm going to fast forward to what I think is a key event, and a lot of people don't recognize as a key event. It was the Great War. Now, I would hope everybody knows what I mean by the Great War, World War II. The last time the whole world was at war, we sent half our armed forces to Europe and the other half to Asia. Those areas of the world were predominantly pagan at the time, or at least some areas of Europe were sliding into paganism if they weren't full-blown paganistic at the time. When our soldiers came back, they brought ideas and practices with them that would quicken our slide into immorality and a full-scale divorce from God. Now, in the 50s, you didn't see it as well, but it was working slowly from the underside, the underbelly of our nation, and it was constantly progressing. And then the head came up above the surface of the waters in the 60s and the 70s as our downward spiral accelerated. You remember the 60s uh, was supposedly an era of free love. Well, that's a nice way of saying a euphemism for sexual immorality. That's what it was. And it was interesting, part of the emphasis for that, you, you had sin and there was consequences for sin. But if you could eliminate the consequences of sin, then sin would be much more easy to do and it wouldn't be such a concern if you could eliminate the consequences. And what did we have? We had the development of the pill. In fact, you remember the country western song that Loretta Lynn used to sing? Now I've got the pill. I can be just like you, uh, husband, who is unfaithful to me. And uh, we had abortion come in. We had the morning after pill. I'm afraid I went to a university who would play a university on the other side of the Red River every year and they would all converge on Dallas and immediately at the return of students, one group to the north, one group to the south, it was the biggest day for prescription in those two universities of the morning or after pill. You weren't involved in that kind of thing, I don't think. At Tennessee, none of that happened. I'm sure it didn't at Tennessee, knowing the, real, uh, the pale orange UT. No, but iridescent, uh, yeah, iridescent is, is maybe a good name for it. Remember, we were an institution before Texas was a state. Also remember that your first governor was our governor first. I, I remember that we were a country while you were still just a state. And I wish we were back to that country. But not only did you have this tremendous upside of immorality, you had a rejection of authority. The anti-war movement and other even armed insurrection groups like the Black Panthers challenged authority. We'll just uh, use anarchy to deal with authority. And then the attacks that occurred on our religious safeguards and practices. Prayer was banned from schools and institutions of government. The Bible was attacked and removed from its use in educational systems. I, I showed you the uh, lawsuit in 1963, the school board versus Shemp, where that decision was made. Public displays of Christianity, such as the Ten Commandments or the nativity scenes, were removed uh, from the public uh, positions. A and these landmark decisions... I promised to show you this chart that somebody had come up with because it amazed me. Uh, in fact, I had a hard time accepting it. First, I just couldn't believe that this was really. But look at this. This is the, it's really on kind of an upward incline until 1963 when this decision was made. New Testament was taken out of schools. This is the uh, 
SAT uh, median scores right in here, kind of on the upper rise. And 1963, it's just precipitous what happened. It, it's amazing that that would be the case to me. But that is the case. But God is not mocked. And whatever a country sows, that they're also going to reap. And if they take him out of their educational systems, that's what's going to happen. So, in the early, late 60s, early 70s, something started to happen. And it looked like we may be making a turnaround. Because college campuses started supporting and spawning groups of student evangelization. And groups like Navigators and Campus Crusade for Christ. And other groups like that started a spiritual revival across the campuses of many of our colleges and universities. And despite the ongoing immorality and degradation that grew in our country, students and a number of student movements were evangelizing students at a remarkable rate. Mass meetings like Expo 72 seemed to have intractical event, uh, effects. New, modern, up-to-date Bibles were published that made use of a number of uh, Manuscripts that weren't, weren't available to the translators in the late 1500s, six, early 1600s. The translators uh, didn't have the arc, uh, burden of archaic denominations installing partisan uh, requirements when they were being translated. Christian publishing and broadcasting were experiencing rapid growth. And evangelical Christians had good reason to rejoice and praise their God for what he was doing in their country. And then suddenly, somehow... That revival lost its momentum. And near the second half of that decade, the sexual freedom returned. And in the 80s and 90s, it overwhelmed our nation. Just overwhelmed it. As we started on an ever-steepening downward spiral of debauchery. And in fact, now as we are looking back on these years from 1950 to 2020... Most of us being eyewitnesses of that period, we see that our nation has followed the forecast of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1. And in fact, I believe we are now a Romans chapter 1 culture. What am I talking about? Well, let's read it and then we'll go back and outline it so we can see. Starting in verse 19 of chapter 1. That which is known about God is evident to them, that is mankind. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Do we not see that in our universe? Well, let's go on. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore God gave them over to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. 
And that should be rather chilling to us, I think. But let's outline it for here just for a second. This key events that Paul predicted. It starts with this. God has made himself known to all mankind. Well, in the 50s, you know what when the movement was described as? The God is dead movement. Now, it's interesting. Did you know that God is dead is a direct quote from the Bible? Of course, they leave out the part, only a fool has said in his heart that God is dead. But uh, it's, it still is a direct quote. And that's where we started in the 50s uh, with the atheistic movement and, and Madeline Murray O'Hare. But then men choose to reject and dishonor God. And we start seeing that as uh, World War I ends and our men come home. They worshiped other pseudo-gods, uh, creatures. They, in our country, we were very astute about our gods. We, we uh, worshiped power and money and prestige and pleasure and things like that. But if you really study some of these other gods that pagan countries of old used to worship, that's what they were really all about. Power, pleasure, uh, political... Uh, recognition, those types of things. So we worshiped these gods. And as a result of worshiping someone else other than the one true God, they are given over to heterosexual impurity, allowing fornication and adultery to become commonplace in their society. You know, as I was growing up uh, in my early years, uh, let's say between zero to third grade, we lived in an apartment complex over on the east end of Boaz Street. Now, Boaz Street is about uh, two blocks south of Lover's Lane. At the time, it was two blocks south of Goff's Hamburgers. And you could smell that wonderful charcoal smell many times if the wind was blowing right all the way down to our apartment. My dad and his father owned that complex, and my grandfather lived on one side, uh, one apartment, and the next apartment was ours. And I would go over there lots of times uh, during the day. And uh, there were certain times when you could sit and watch, but you couldn't do anything else because they were watching their soap operas. And I was amazed that even my grandfather, you know, uh, a first lieutenant in, in the uh, armed forces in the uh, American Expeditionary Force uh, under Blackjack Pershing that went over into... Europe in World War I, he would watch these silly things, the edge of night. But as I would reflect, reflect on these shows, the, I began to understand something. You know what would always seem to happen in those shows? Either one of two things, fornication or adultery. And the concept was, you know, the major people who watched that in our nation, you know what demographic group that was? Housewives. Adultery is normal. Everybody does it. It's just something in society. It's not that bad. It's what everybody does. Because you're seeing it so frequently and they're treating it that way. And you began to see that. And this uh, became commonplace in our nation. As a result, you know, but what we do, we don't call it adultery. We use a much nicer term, affair. It's an affair. Not adultery. Candace. Um, you were talking about the sexual revolution in the 60s and the downward spiral. I, I was wondering about that. You know, it's, you always have prostitution. There's always been money made off of all that. But now with this children trafficking, to me it's reached, I mean, that's that. No, it's epidemic level. The money involved. That is a huge business. The only other thing that we have, a long time ago, I read uh, an article by a leading uh, advocate of the LGB community, and he said the next thing that we are going to legalize and get approved is pedophilia and recognize that it's just like anything else. And the only other thing that I have seen in history that could be added to that is bestiality. Now, you know, 
Here again, we think, oh, how gross is that? No one would ever do that. But then we thought these other things were gross. And no, human sacrifice of infants is already with us. Even cannibalism of infants. But let's, let's move on. Because as a result of the heterosexual morality rebellion to God, people are given over to degrading passions of homosexuality. So first it takes the passions that God created and made for our enjoyment within the bounds of marriage, and you start uh, running rampant with those without confines that God created, and then he's going to turn us over to uh, the degrading passions of homosexuality. And then finally, they are given over to a depraved mind. That is, where right is wrong, and wrong is right, and degradation is hardly approved by the general public. Now, I would suggest to you that there should be no question in your minds that America has followed this path. And the reason I would suggest that to you is because you have seen it with your very eyes. It has happened right in front of us. And we can't deny it. There has been a study, and I cannot remember the man's name, Dr. Dobson talked about it in the family of 80 nations that follow the same path. And we're there. And they're destroyed. Okay. I, um, I'm, I just want to bring up the other side, too, that right now I'm watching, like on TVN, and when I watch, there, there are stadiums of young people falling down and worshiping Christ. And what about that? I mean, there are people, there are masses in America. That and, and there is always, Kathy, a remnant. But our nation as a whole is in this downward spiral, and we're fixing to go out the drain. Uh, it's interesting. I came across a scholar by the name of Nathan Jones who was writing in The Lamplighter. And he has a thesis, and his thesis is that Satan has developed a 5 part plan to destroy America. These are the five parts of Satan's plan according to Nathan Jones. One, break down and destroy your families. Do we see that? Legalize and promote abortion. Do we see that? Foment division among her citizens. Start first with race, then gender, then uh, political divisions, then wealth-based, and then religious decision, uh, divisions, and create those divisions among the people. Are we seeing that? Now, maybe the order of those, those five would be a little different in some of our opinions, but they're all there, and we're living in them. Number four, create confusion over our sexual identity. And finally, increase among the general population the instant of emotional disorders. All of that his hypothesis seems to be accurate to me based upon the evidence that I've seen in our nation. You see, America is no longer a Christian nation, and we say that, but the thing we have to say to follow it is we are now a pagan nation. Now, I talked about this last time. Let me bring it up just briefly, and that is this. I see God having basically two alternatives. Number one, to come back for his church and allow the world to prepare for the tribulation. Or number two, to institute the fifth cycle of discipline in our nation and allow us to be overrun. One of those two was gonna, is going to happen. But during the time that God waits before instituting one of those two alternatives, what should we do? How should the church, our Lord's bride, live in a pagan America? Well, the answer to that question is really very simple. The same way the church was told to live in Crete or Rome or Corinth or Ephesus. They were all pagan. And so when we come to Titus, the third chapter, he's now going to instruct Christians. How do you live in a pagan land? How do you deal with this kind of rampant paganism? So understand that when Paul is speaking about a pagan government here in chapter 3. Crete was, 
was two key centers. It was the center, a military center for Rome and an economic center for Rome. They had a key and important naval bases there in Crete, which could go anywhere in the Mediterranean that was needed on the east side. Uh, they'd go from Rome or Sicily on the west side. And a strong, uh, let's say, infantry type base where they could send legionnaires anywhere they needed to have them. That was there. But it was also a strong economic uh, location or hub where things would go to the Middle East and from there back to Rome. So they were in control. And at the time, Nero was the emperor of Rome, who was an emperor who was not known for his affinity for Christians, unless it was for uh, his need for torches at night. Paul's admonitions were this, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good deed. Now let's look at this a second. Remind them, that is believers, to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready for every good work. Now, Please understand, I'm going to tell you what I think and what I find, and I hope it doesn't upset you too much, but I'm going to tell you what I believe is true. Now, let's look at this verse in the KJV. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready for, to every good work. Do you notice some differences there in those two translations? Now, I want us to take just a second to look at that. This word that's translated remind, remind versus put in mind. What does it mean to you, put in mind? Well, that's an archaic phrase that doesn't really tell us. Remind is perfect. If you look at this Greek word in the lexicon, and by the way, for those of you who are unhappy with me, the lexicon I use is a one developed by the translators of the King James Bible. The uh, word here is uh, hupo minosko, and it means to cause one to remember. And that's what the word means, to cause one to remember. Now then there's this word obey, hupotasso, that means to submit to one's control. Now, here's the next thing. Are you familiar with a verse? Sometimes you could translate in a certain way, but if you don't, don't look at the context, you just come out wrong. Do you remember the verse Ephesians 6.12? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and... Evil, you know, what is he talking about there in that uh, spiritual warfare passage of Ephesians? Satan and his demonic followers, those who he has. Now, it's interesting if you look at it, the word for translated in King James, their principalities, is single. It's RK. That means really the primary leader, the highest ruler. Author the one translated here, uh, powers, is... Exousia, which means has the power to act, they would be the ruler's subordinates. If you translate it this way, what could somebody interpret that as saying? Well, we're to be subject to the angelic powers. Is that the concept of this verse? No. Instead, rulers, their authorities, were to be obedient to them. That's one thing that I think you ought to see. Down to King James, it has this word magistrates. Not in the Greek text. You see, the, the, the uh, grammar is to obey, and it's referring to the things right before it's principality or power, not, not angelic beings, but to rulers and authorities. And so this is the way he starts out, and this is the commandment that he gives us. Yes. Yes, they did, because they saw the difference there, an error in that translation. But you know, Bonnie, it's interesting. 
There are people, one of which I may live with, but I'm not admitting that, who say the New King James. It's the King James and the King James only. When we read the New American Standard and look at it carefully, if there's mistakes in it, we should point them out. If there's mistakes in the King James, we should point those out. Because what do we want? Or what should we want? The truth, right? And uh, I guess there's not a translation that doesn't have a mistake in it because uh, those translations were not made by God, but were made by men. Uh, the translations are not inspired. Only the autographed original was inspired. All right? Now, let's go on because you see at the end of this, it says to be ready for every good deed. Is there then a, an exception to this? Yes. If the rulers or authorities instruct you to do something contrary to what God wants you to do, instructs you to do, then you have to say no. It's, you see, to be ready for every good work. Now, not what we think is good or that. It's, we're talking biblical in Paul's language here. So this verse speaks of an attitude and a conduct in relation to the governments. How did Jesus view this? Well, it's interesting. There was, he was questioned in Matthew 22, starting in verse 16. Listen to what he said. And they sent their disciples to him among the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. That's a lie. And you defer to no one. That's the truth. For you are not partial to any. That's the truth. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, he's trying to trap him. Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a Daenerys. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is on it? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So if it's not something that's negative to God, we're to try to obey. You see, he knew all about Caesar, Jesus did, and that Caesar claimed to be God. He unequivocally stated that the tax should be paid. In fact, Jesus didn't exempt himself from paying taxes as the son of God. He paid taxes to Caesar. If you look in uh, Matthew 17, you see, our lives are designed to continually demonstrate that we have been transformed. And this transformation came about when we became a child of God. And how we respond to our government, even though it's pagan, says the type of transformation that we have in our lives. Now, this is something that's very difficult for me to say. But the way the election, this last election ended, Joe Biden became president. Do I think they're voter fraud? Do I think that the election was stolen? Who's, though, ultimately in control? Does God have a problem with controlling election fraud? I don't think he does. Can God prevent an election from being stolen if he chose, chooses to? Absolutely. Of course he can. He's in control. The people who stole the election, they're not in control. They think they are, but they're not. And this is the way God wanted it to be. Maybe because he's punishing us, but the fact is, this is the way. So that's the way Paul is telling Titus to tell these Cretan believers that um, they should live or, or, or respond to their government. Secondly, how about the pagan society they're living in? In Titus 2, 3, 2, it starts this way, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hating, hateful, and hating one another. Let's look first at the instructions. The word translated here as malign speaks of slandering someone, cursing someone, treating them with contempt. You know, it's easy for, it would be easier for us to say, well, I don't think I malign anyone. But do you ever slander anyone? Do you ever curse anyone? Do you ever uh, treat them with contempt? Secondly, you're to be peaceable. That is, uncontentious. 
I know there's a lot of people who know me who would say, well, if I choose on Brady, whether he's peaceable or, or, or contentious, it's real easy. They would not go with the good one. Uh, not quarrelsome or belligerent. Third, we're to be gentle. That is, we should understand that we need to be moderate, fair, and forbearing in how we treat others. And finally, we're to show consideration to all men. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because we're going to come back to that statement, show consideration. Verse 3 speaks of how we were and how sin enslaved us. I want you to notice that again. Look at that. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various lusts and pleasures, spending our, our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Does that appear to have some aura of inability to change? I mean, can the slave just become unslaved whenever they want? Can uh, those things there, if you look at that, what he's saying, understand the pagans you're living with. They can't help themselves. Can you be the things in the first verse, not maligning, peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration? Can you be those things just because you choose to when you're an unbeliever? No, no you can't. And he says, you need to recognize these people you're saying, well, they're doing this to me. You know, there's some Christians who say, I want to live by the golden rule. You know, do unto others as you would have them do to you. And I just look at it, and if they're doing that to me, I'm understanding that's what they want me to do to them. No, that's not the way it works. You see, we should consider and be considerate to our pagan neighbors because of what is going on in their lives. They can't help themselves. Until they become a believer, they're stuck, they're enslaved. They can't get out. We need to recognize that. They'll know what's good. To me, the perfect example of this, you're saying, Doug, what do you mean? They don't know what they're doing. They really don't. Come on. They don't. They don't understand what's going on at all. What did Jesus say on the cross? Luke 22, 34. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, I have to admit to you, I have a hard time with that verse. How can you say they didn't know what they were doing? They knew exactly what they were doing. And what would Jesus respond to that? No, they didn't. They didn't understand at all what was going on. They didn't understand the control Satan had on them. They didn't understand this was his plan, and he thought he was going to win by killing me. And they did not understand that even that I had to die for them to give them a chance to be saved. If you can say they, those Pharisees who were putting Jesus to death didn't understand what was really going on, then you certainly can say that about your neighbors. Those who we live with, and even people like Joe and Camilla and Nancy, they don't know what's really going on. Now, because of what's happening to our nation, I have a hard time saying, Father, forgive them. But that is exactly what I'm supposed to do. Now, why are we supposed to show them consideration and understand that they really don't know what they're doing? It's because of what comes next. And if I was to say that Titus, the book of Titus is a diamond and a beautiful diamond, all of us know, I think, that the top facet on the diamond is the place where you can really look into it and see the brilliance and the fire and the beauty of that diamond. That top facet is the most important cut of all. Titus 3.5 is the top facet of this diamond that Paul's given to us. And I, I want us to start because what we need to come to now is something I call the prime directive. The prime directive. What does that mean, the prime directive? Is that just a fancy slogan somebody's come up with? What does it mean, the prime directive? The most important thing, the first order. That's exactly right. The most important thing, the first order, the thing we're to be about. And we're going to find that in three, chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love 
for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we have been made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. First thing I want you to notice, hit the next slide, Jerry. You notice how all three members of the uh, Trinity are in this passage? Because they're all involved in this. And that's important to see. Now, next question. You notice it said appeared. That verb appeared. What appeared? Or who appeared? Here this is a personification, I believe. What is a personification where you take some concept some idea, something, and you use it to refer to a person. The kindness of God and love for mankind is speaking of Jesus. Jesus appeared. That's what, do we have salvation without that, Gary? An epiphany uh, appeared? Yeah, we had it in chapter 2 also. When, so these epiphanies, thank you, Gary, Kindness of God and love for mankind, that's a description of Jesus. And that's what he's doing. He is the one who brought this salvation opportunity to the world. And I want you to see that. Now, kindness here means generation, or generosity of heart. And uh, just like in verse 211, where the grace of God has appeared, which is an epiphany. Now... These traits of the risen Lord stand in stark contrast to Paul's description of lost humanity. You look at that, the kindness and the love and later mercy. Is that what he's describing the pagans in chapter 3? I mean, verse 3? No. It's the exact opposite of what he's saying of them. Uh, they, that's why they stand in such stark contrast for description of lost humanity. So Paul, in this very important passage is going to lay out for us the doctrine of soteriology. Now, what is the doctrine of soteriology? Well, you can pay a lot of money to Crystal College or Dallas Theological Seminary, and they will tell you what soteriology means, the doctrine of salvation. Well, why don't they just call it the doctrine of salvation? Well, you know, theologians and doctors... And CPAs and engineers, they all have to come up with their own words that you can't understand so they can explain them. Now, we lawyers, we never do that. But these other groups do. And so that's the term, soteriology. So let's look at it. First and foremost, who saved us? Jesus did. We are unable to save ourselves. Jesus is the only one who can save us. All we can do is trust him. That is to put our faith in him and not ourselves or anyone else or anything. It's important for us to recognize, I think, that faith is a non-meritorious process. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's really very simple. The faith places the merit in the object of the faith, not in the person who has the faith. You see? Because it's all on God. Faith puts the merit in its object. So, does it matter how strong the faith is? No. It was a 50-50 chance on that. It matters the value of the object. You see? Now, I've used this example before. If you're walking on ice... Does it matter how much faith you believe that that ice will hold you up? No, it matters how thick the ice is, right? The perfect biblical example of this is, is found in 1 Kings chapters 18 and 19, where Elijah is meeting the 900 prophets and priestesses of Baal on Mount Carmel. And you remember they set up that battle, and they have uh, each one is going to build an altar and, and put some... Uh, butcher a cattle piece uh, a cow and put it on there an oxen and then ask but not light it ask their god baal to light it or yahweh to light it and burn it up and you know the priests and prophets of baal thought this guy's made a big mistake don't they understand that baal's the god of lightning and of fire no he understood that perfectly 
So I said, go ahead. And did they demonstrate extreme faith? Even to the point of cutting themselves and throwing their blood on this altar to try and convince Baal to light this fire. But the score that day was one to zero. That's the score of a forfeiture. You see, Baal didn't show up because he doesn't exist. God lit the fire. Baal didn't. But they had strong faith. It didn't matter how strong their faith was. It mattered how strong the object of their faith was. And so we need to see that first. Jesus is the one who saves us. That's where our faith is placed. Secondly, what he's saying here, our salvation is nothing to, has nothing to do with good or good works which we've done during our lives. Do you see that here? Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness. Same thing it says in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, lest any man should boast. You see, that's because no one can measure up to God's standards. So what he's telling us here is our own merit is insufficient and always insufficient, Gary. I was just curious about this text because it seems like there's a kind of sandwich going on because in verse 3, he says we are also want for foolish ourselves, talking about their bad deeds. Yep. In this verse right here, in verse 5, uh, he says not on the basis of good deeds. So why is he, why is he sandwiching that together? He's doing that because he wants to, to show people, even if you can overcome this badness that you were, these bad and wicked deeds that you practice all the time, and just try to do good things, you still can't make it. In fact, in my eyes, your righteousness, the term it uses is filthy rags. That's not what it really is. Something much more gross than that. But that's what it is to me. Gross. Uh, Jesus is saying. And so that's the way he, he's, he's trying to make us understand it is, it is impossible. Somebody say, well, I'm bad, but this guy is really good. He's better than anybody I've ever met. He's insufficient. He can't make it. No one can make it on their own. Now, the next thing it says here is our salvation is due in part to the mercy that God chose to show us. Now, that mercy was, of course, undeserved. But what I want you to see, you take the love for mankind that's in verse 3, and you mix it with the undeserved mercy of verse 5. I said the love for mankind in verse 3, it's in verse 4. And you mix it with this mercy, in verse five, and what do you get? Grace. That's the foundation of our salvation. Those two things. His love and His mercy for us. That's grace, and that's what he gives us, and that's what we should be reminded of. Now, let's look at the means, the means for salvation here. And if I go a little long here, I'm sorry, but, and if you have to leave, you can leave. Uh, it doesn't bother me, unless you yell at me as you're leaving. <laughs> then Paul speaks of the means which were saved. Now, I want you to look at this. We've got a little problem here. By the washing of regeneration. Do you know what there is a number of churches and theologians say? That makes it very clear. The first and most important thing to be saved is baptism. If you're not baptized, you're not saved. That's what they say. Can they find support anywhere else in the Bible for that? Yes, they can. Let's look at it. Can we have Mark chapter 16, verse 15 through 16? And he said to them, the he is Jesus. And supposedly they're quoting Jesus. Go into all the world and preach the gospel of all the creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved. But he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. What does that verse say is required for salvation? Baptism. Baptism. That's clear. You look at the Greek, it's saying the same thing. Some people try to tell me, well, wait a second. It says, if you disbelieve, then you're condemned. Well, there are two things that that verse has required for salvation, belief and baptism. 
So if you don't do the first one, you don't even get to the second one. It's not saying you don't have to be baptized. You have to be baptized to be saved. Now, that's what it says. It's unequivocal. Now, let's talk about that just a second. If you have a King James Bible open, it doesn't say anything in this section of Mark 9 through the end of the chapter. If you have a New American Standard open, it should have brackets around it. Wouldn't that, Steve? Chapters 9 through 20, I believe. And there's a reason for that. You see, they say that's in the Bible. I say it's not. It's not. What is it doing there? It was added later. Now, wait a second. How can you say that? The oldest and best manuscripts do not have that passage, well, an expanded passage, 9 through 20 in them. You ought to look at some of the things it says after this about how if you're really a believer, you'll handle snakes and you won't die and other things like that. You see, an editor put that in and we need to understand that. And, it, and as they copied it, they, they added some things. Do you not think that Satan would love to dilute the authority of Scripture? Okay. Well, are there any... What I did is, uh, you know, right above the place where I do my creating of these lessons, I guess you could say, or writing of them, I have about 20 Bibles. So I pulled out two of the most well-thought-of King James Version study Bibles. First one I pulled out was the Criswell Study Bible. If you look at the Crystal Study Bible, starting in Mark chapter 16, verse 9, you will see that it says this. The majority of the textual critics believe that the text of Mark concludes with verse 8, the remainder being added at a later time by a redactor or editor. Now, one of the problems with King James, which was translated late 1500s, early 1600s, they didn't have all the manuscripts we have today. It, the other one I pulled out was the Ryrie, not the Ryrie, excuse me, the Schofield Study Bible, King James Version. When it came to Mark chapter 9, this is what it says. The notes in the Schofield Bible state verses 9 through 20 are not found in two of the most ancient manuscripts, Sianticus and the Vaticanus. Well, let's just look at this a second. Why wasn't the Vaticanus made available to the King James translators? No, they had it in, in Rome. What did they do? They left the Roman Catholic Church. The Church of England, who's doing this King James translation. Do you think Rome is going to help them with their new Bible? No. no, not for you rebels. Now, of course, you know, I don't believe, I believe in the Reformation. But that's the way things happen. You had a comment, Gary? Yeah, um, you know, if you go back to that text of Mark, if you use, since, since water does not appear in the text, but actually the preaching of the gospel... The word baptized could mean immerse. So like if you go to Matthew 28, go here. Go back to Mark. But he, here is what he's saying here, and you need to understand this. We don't have a lot of time left because I'm running way over. But baptized here is talking about an act of the believer. The believer chooses to be baptized. But the baptism into the Holy Spirit or into the church of God is not done by the believer. It's done by God. But this also could be talking about the immersion into the word. Well, you might be able to argue that. I don't think the best Greek scholars say that. I read uh, Wiest on it. He doesn't go with that. But, you know, you can look at it and see for yourselves, and that's all I want. Now, let's talk about the washing of regeneration, because the washing, this word washing or cleansing usually has to do with water. And that's the, how it's translated. And regeneration means receiving of new life. And this concept correlates perfectly with uh, John 3's concept of being born again. 
it uses the same concept in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, starting in verse 26. So he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water of the word. What is he saying? What's the important thing? The word of God must be there for salvation. If you are going to help, if somebody's going to be saved, they have to have the truth of God. Now, when we're saved, we are cleansed of our sin by the power of the word of God. Now, is that what the Bible really teaches? Well, look in James 1.18. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we may be made a kind of first fruits among his creatures. What is he doing? He's saying the word of truth is what brought us forth. Uh, that's a euphemism for giving birth to. In 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed that is perishable and imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. So he's talking about that. If you are going to be an effective soul winner, and this is not in the notes, by the way, if you're an effective soul, you need to know the word of God. Well, what, the whole thing? No, you can't know the whole thing. If I was doing it, I'd say, John 3.16, John 10.10, 10, Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, 1 Corinthians 15.3-5, John 1.12, Ephesians 2.8 and 9, and just to be controversial, Revelation 3.20. Those are the ones I would want to know if I'm going to share. Now, some of you say, well, what about Romans 10.9? Nope. People misunderstand that. Um, but we don't have time to get into it. So, first, the washing of regeneration, or cleansing of regeneration. Second, renewing of the Holy Spirit. What is this word, renewing? Anakinosis. It means a complete change for the better. The Holy Spirit, working through the Word of God, empowers the initial spiritual birth, and thereafter our new life in Him. So, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. And that's where we are. Now, you can tell that I bit off a little more than I could chew this morning. So we're going to leave the rest of this passage and we'll pick it up. But before we finish, I have four questions. Four questions that you need to ask yourself. And I would say... The best way or place to ask yourself is either by yourself or with your spouse, if you can, on your knees. Get together with God and say, God, I have some questions I want to ask me, and I want you to make sure that I'm asking the right question, but more importantly, that I'm giving an honest answer. Number one, can I live in pagan America? Well, you know what? I don't think you have much of a choice. Who put you here? And who, who, who brought about this paganism? And you say, what do you mean? Who brought about this paganism? What does it say in Romans? They worshiped the creature instead of the creator, so I gave them over to. And then it repeats itself when it comes to the home, and then it repeats itself to the depraved mind. Is time short? Yes, time is short. If time is short, shouldn't we dedicate ourselves to the prime directive? I mean, you think about this for just a second. If you knew that in 2024, Jesus was coming back for us, what should you be about doing? The prime directive, right? Sharing your faith. We need to be saving as many people as we can so that they don't have to spend eternity in hell. Final question. Can you live in this pagan America reminding yourself or in remembrance that you don't own yourself, somebody else owns you. I don't mean your spouse or your children, I mean your God. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we can be together today and that we can study this. I thank you for keeping me together. I pray, Father, that you will speak to our hearts from this passage and we will come to understand what it is that you want us to see and what it is that you want us to learn. Help us to understand what's most important to you, that you want people to be born again and not have to be separated for an eternity from you because you love them and you made them.
Help us to have that same love that you brought, that your son brought to this earth for the people he created, even when they're wicked and evil. Pray these things, Father, in the name of your son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.